What a powerful song. What a powerful message for us to not only to proclaim, but to hear and to embrace as the testimony of our lives that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a glorious anthem and proclamation that we celebrate today. Thank you, choir and orchestra, and leading us in that. If you would, take your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. We are walking the way of Christ over these weeks and looking through the book of Philippians. And really, if you wanted to, to focus in on and, and, and look at a particular chapter or a few verses, it seems to me that Philippians 2 is one of those places where you would go that describes and prescribes the way of Christ. By giving us not just the, the attitude or the mind of Christ, but showing how Christ lived that out each and every day. And so this chapter is packed full of truth. It's packed full of encouragement and teaching for us. And so we want to be faithful and sure to, to work through it as quickly as possible today and try to focus on these main points as we strive to walk faithfully the way of Christ I'd like for us to begin by reading verses 12 and 13 together. We're going to skip to the middle portion of this chapter that really kind of, I think, summarizes where we want to go and what we want to understand today. So if you would, read along with me. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let us focus on this truth today and see how Paul draws this out and explains it for us in the rest of this chapter. We are to work out our salvation, for God is at work in us. God is at work in you. I remember growing up, whenever my sister and I would get into a disagreement or an argument, my mom would somehow manage to get us into a room together, and here's what she would say, work it out, right? Oh, that someone would get all the people in Oklahoma City and all the people in Washington, D.C. together and put them in a room and say, you're not getting out of here until you work it out, Right? Paul is reminding us of the great and incredible work that God has begun and is doing in us. But he helps us to understand that whenever there is a divine initiative, that it always requires a human response. And so we are called to work out our salvation. Some of you are familiar with the story of Apollo 13. And how on that journey and that mission to the moon, the, the command module became uh, uninhabitable. And the crew, in order to save their lives as they aborted the mission to actually go to and land on the moon, found themselves in the lunar module. Now the lunar module was developed and created to hold two astronauts for 36 hours. Not three astronauts for 96 hours. And as you're familiar with the story, whether you've read or researched or seen the movie, what you will remember is that the lunar module began to be filled with the CO2 gases expelled by the astronauts. 
And it soon became clear that if they didn't do something quickly, that they, these astronauts would suffocate in their own carbon dioxide. And so the ground crew got together and they got into a room and they were brought all of the resources that were available in that lunar module and they put them all on the table and they had this round filter and they had this square filter and they had to figure out how do they make the square how do they make the round filter serv- or the, excuse me the square filter serviceable in a module that was created for these circular cylindrical filters. And of course, the good news is, is that they were able to to come up with a procedure and they were able to take those resources and they were able to work it out. The astronauts upon their return were very quick to respond that that amidst all the wonderful things and all the things that happened that that allowed them to survive and re-enter into the Earth's atmosphere and survive that mission, they all stepped forward and said, had we not worked out this filter issue, we would not have survived and lived. But they were able to work out the problem, the situation, and the opportunity to buy these astronauts the precious oxygen that they needed to survive. You see, church, we too are called to work out our salvation. Now let's be clear. The work of salvation is God's. God is the initiator of salvation, and there's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace, to earn God's favor, to earn God's salvation. Yet still, We are called to be partners with God in working that out, in bringing our salvation to that complete and perfect and mature journey that He has called us to. If you remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this. He says, I am confident that He who began, He began that work of salvation, that He who began a good work of salvation in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus until the day that Christ returns. God is the initiator and sustainer of our salvation, but He invites us as a partner in that process to work out our salvation. He gives us the tools and the resources and calls us to work that out. Certainly no sin can be conquered, no life can be changed without the inward work of God in us. But conquer and change we must because we are called to be a part of the process of working out our salvation. Therefore, the way of Christ is marked by progress. Is your life marked by progress in faith? Or is your life continuously marked by the same temptations, the same faults, the same mistakes, the same habits, day by day by day, by month by month, by year by year. Why is it that so many of us do not see progress in our own salvation? The question that we must ask is why? What hinders us What hinders you? What hinders me from working out what God has already worked in to us? But church, there's good news. 
there's good news in this working out process because we are not left alone. We are given the example of Christ. And we are placed within the body of Christ, within the church, so that we might live out and work out our salvation with the Spirit of God and with the church that we are a part of. Let's go back and begin to read in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Allow me to read these first two verses, and then we'll pick up together and read verses 3 and 4 together. Therefore, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. And now in verse 3, let's pick up together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, the way of Christ requires the people of Christ. The way of Christ requires us to walk with and to share our lives with the church. Look at verse 1 very quickly. Paul is describing the way of Christ within the life of the church. First of all, that way is marked by encouragement. We need encouragement in order to work out the way of Christ in our lives. We need encouragement from each other as we work out our salvation. Why? Because it's a difficult journey. We struggle with those habits and those temptations and we get frustrated at ourselves and we get angry at ourselves. And Paul says that in the body of Christ, we are to be a people that encourage each other. But we also, in the body of Christ, find the consolation of love because life is hard And life is tragic. And life involves and includes death. And death is difficult. And death can be hurtful and painful as we have those times of separation. Yesterday, as this congregation, as this sanctuary was filled with with, uh, the Williams family and those that loved Leanne and came to, to support and love and encourage this family, That love, that consolation of love, that gathering around those individuals that are struggling and saying, you know what, even during the hard times, you can count on us to love you and to walk with you and to be there for you no matter what. Paul says that the the body of Christ is marked by a fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit of God reigns and lives and and works within us. The the Spirit of God, the the breath of God, breathes life into us and into our fellowship and our community. The Spirit of God is that which links and binds us together. And there is a fellowship that takes place when the Spirit of God is present among us and creates that community, that community of faith and of trust. That community where we can walk together, where we can encourage each other, where we can trust one another. Paul goes on to say that in the community of faith, there's an affection. There's a 
a, a caring, a nurturing for each other. There's a, a compassion for each other that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel for you, but not only am I going to feel, I'm going to let my compassion be manifested in action and activity. Affection and compassion is illustrated when you, when you see devastation in a place like Houston and Corpus. And you have a church that gathers groups to go down and say, we're going to share because we have compassion and affection and we can make a difference and we can go and we can love and care and minister to others just as it is when we serve a meal on a Sunday afternoon, welcoming those in our community that just want to sit down around the table and have a good meal and share in fellowship and even prayer with others. Because there's a compassion, there's an affection for people and for each other in this place. The way of Christ is encouragement, it's love, it's fellowship, it's affection, it's compassion. And then Paul says this, he says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, of, of sharing in the same love and the same spirit and having the same purpose. Joy brings strength. And joy is found in a unity of fellowship. There's a strength in that. In a few verses early in, in Philippians 1.27, Paul says, let me get the right words, that we are to stand firm with each other. We're to be together. We're to share life. We're to offer and to share life in a sense of unity, of direction, of purpose, of mind, of spirit. And there is strength in that. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. When there's joy, when there's unity, there's joy. And when there's joy, there's strength. Remember Nehemiah, when he went back to rebuild the wall, he proclaimed that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Why? Because he needed that strength in the battles, in the struggles, and the difficulties of that time. Yet God's people, the remnant, had come together and with a unity of mind and purpose had decided they were going to rebuild the wall. And there was a sense of joy in that unity and joy in fulfilling the purposes of God. And Nehemiah proclaimed, the joy of the Lord is my strength in the body of Christ. Paul is reminding us that there is a strength that brings joy and unity and purpose. Now as we continue in that beautiful chapter, look at verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Here's the way another translation put it. Another author said it this way. Think this in you. Think this in you, which Christ thought in himself. Think this in you, which Christ thought in him. Have the same mind. Have the same attitude of Christ. And that attitude is described in those verses that we just read. That attitude goes like this. The mind of Christ says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition. With humility, regard one another as more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own interest. Rather, look out for the interests of others. This is the mind and the attitude of Christ. This is the way of Christ that we are to embrace. Self-ambition, by definition, means the elimination of others. 
Self-ambition means that I go before everyone else. Self-ambition means that it doesn't matter who I have to step on and who I have to step over, that it's all about me. When we pursue our goals and our dreams and our lives with selfish ambition, instead of lifting and pulling people up, we are pushing on them and stepping on them so that they can remain down. In contrast... Jesus would have us to practice humility. Humility is the sacrificial willingness to give up our own rights and to work for the good of others. To serve and to help others. To help others along their way. To bless others. This isn't just about helping others in desperate need, although that's included. But it's coming alongside others to encourage and to walk with them. And help them to move forward in their own life's journey. The mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ is about serving and giving and loving others. I find it interesting. Some of you are familiar with the work in, in psychology of Abraham Maslow. I believe it was around the 1940s that he proposed a, a hierarchy of need. His work has influenced and shaped much of humanistic psychology since that time. He called the highest level of personal development that one could achieve self-actualization. Maslow observed this. He said, without exception, I have found that every person who was sincerely happy who was radiantly alive, was living for a purpose or a cause beyond themselves. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition. With humility, regard one another as more important than yourself. And look out for the interest of others, not just your own. You see, this is the attitude and the way of Christ. And by the way, Maslow recognized that, and he actually called Jesus a self-actualized person. Fascinating. The way of Christ is pictured in these next verses as we, we see his story, as we see the example of Christ. Many believe that these next verses are actually a hymn of the early church, beautifully put to music by our choir and orchestra this morning. But listen to this beautiful first century hymn extolling Christ and offering the example that he gives. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the example of Christ, right off the bat, we see 
that Christ is offering us this example of humility, not of selfish ambition, but rather of emptying himself. He is emptying himself. He's not grasping. He's not trying to hang on to his position in heaven. He's not trying to hang on to that position next to the, on the right hand next to the Father. He's not trying to grasp and hang on to it like he's, he's going to lose that forever. But rather, Jesus is about emptying himself. This word empty means to lay aside the privileges. In becoming a man, Jesus laid aside the privileges of his deity. Now, he was still God. He was all God and he was all man. But he made the choice to lay aside the privileges of his deity in order to come and to serve and to bring salvation to you and to me. Do you remember the story of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3? It's a powerful story. A story of two mothers who had babies at about the same time. And the story goes that one of those babies died in the middle of the night. And and one of those mothers in her grief and her sadness took her baby, her her baby who had passed, and, and put it with the mother whose baby was still alive. And she took the live baby and claimed him as her own. Of course, the mother woke up the next morning and and there was not her baby, but the baby had passed and was was laying there. And they began to argue about whose baby it was. And and they went before Solomon and, and Solomon heard their story and he heard their plea. And he heard this argument of mothers claiming this child as their own. And finally, Solomon said, okay, here's what we'll do. Almost offensive in, in Solomon's decision. He said, well, if you both want the baby, we'll divide the baby. Literally. And the mother who'd already lost her child said, sure, go ahead. And the mother whose baby that was said, no, no. She can have the baby. She she can have my son. Do you see here a mother laying aside her privilege? Laying aside her responsibility. She laid it aside. She died to herself. Why? Because she knew that that would bring about the salvation of her son, whom she dearly loved. Jesus laid aside his privileges to come and to die on the cross for us. And of course, as we know the story, Solomon, in his wisdom, understood immediately that in the response of these mothers, he knew exactly who the mother was. And this mother who was willing to lay aside that privilege was rewarded and exalted, so to speak, and given the care of her own son back. You see, the example of Christ is in emptying ourselves, not in grasping and hanging on with all that we've got. The example of Christ is emptying, but it's not being empty. Jesus did not empty himself to emptiness. Rather, he emptied himself so that he could take up and take on and put on the form of a servant, the likeness of a slave. The language here in this passage is is revealing. The emptying of Jesus was only temporary, the language tells us. At some point, Jesus would once again be filled with that which he had emptied, with that which he had set aside. But in the immediate moment... 
His emptying was legitimate. His emptying was real. Jesus became a man. He took on what it meant to be a man. He took on what it meant to be a slave and a servant. As Jesus told us in the gospel several times, that he came not to be served, but rather to serve. Jesus laid down his life and he picked up the form of a servant. The example of Christ that we see is through obedience through the cross. Obedience is absolutely necessary in the working out of your salvation. It's absolutely necessary in the working out of my salvation. We must learn what it means to be obedient even if it takes us to the cross. You see, Jesus offered the most extravagant the most shocking example of obedience that we have ever seen. In Matthew 26, Jesus says there in that arrest scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells Peter and his disciples, when Peter reached for that sword and, and, and began to fight back, Jesus said, Peter, disciples, hang on, wait. I could call 12 legions of angels to come. But I have set that aside. I have laid that aside so that this might come to pass in my life. Jesus was being obedient to the will and the purpose of God in his life, even if it meant setting aside his own life and his own privilege. Jesus took on the cross. He took on humiliation and he took on weakness in the form of being crucified. He took on the death of a slave. The death of one who had rebelled against their place and their station in life. You see, the cross is so shocking. The cross is so offensive that second century anti-Christian philosopher Celsus said this. He said, I reject the message of Jesus because God does not suffer. And God cannot be humiliated. Celsus understood the humiliation and the suffering of Christ on the cross. And because of his own beliefs, he said, then there is no way that this could be God. Yet church, this is the example of Christ for us. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul talks about his life being poured out as an offering. What a beautiful picture of what it means to, to go to the cross, to, to have our lives poured out as an offering for others. Is your life being poured out in service, in ministry for others? What about in your family? Is your life being poured out in your family, in service to your spouse, to your children, to your parents? This is the example of Christ. This is what Paul said, oh, my life is being poured out to you, church, at Philippi. How much more should our lives be poured out for one another? You see, church, this is the way of Christ. Working out what God is working in. Another way to translate verse 12 that I found really insightful, it says, live according to your salvation. Live according to that which is already in you. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
This is not fear and trembling that, that comes from defeated surrender and from broken submission. No, on the contrary, this is trembling and fear that comes out of an amazing love, out of seeing something that brings great awe and wonder at the life of Christ. And out of that, we discover that we want to be obedient out of an amazing love that Christ has showed us. And then that we want to return to him. Isaac Watts, the beautiful 18th, 18th century, I don't know if he was beautiful, but his works were beautiful, right? The 18th century hymnist wrote these words, and he captures this truth. He says, love so amazing, so divine, that it demands my life, my soul, my all. This is what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work for his good pleasure in us. Therefore, Paul says in verse 14, do not grumble and do not dispute. This word grumble comes from the, the wilderness wanderings of God's people. Oh, they were grumbling and they were mur murmuring and they were faithless and they were rebellious. And they were on the verge of mutiny and Paul is saying, don't grumble and don't murmur and don't dispute. This word dispute means just argue, just to argue for the sake of arguing. They're useless, ill-natured debates that only produce doubting. And oh, church, that we would realize and understand that so many struggles of the church today, of individual churches today, is that we focus on murmuring and disputing with each other. In contrast to what? To what Paul has called us to in verses 1 and 2, which is what? Which is fellowship. Which is love. Which is joy. Which is unity. Which is all those things that we're to experience and share together. Church, we can't finish until we deal with these verses in 9 through 11. The extravagant obedience of Jesus the extravagant obeying of Jesus to the point of death on the cross can only be matched by the extravagant outpouring of love and gratitude by the Father, who in seeing this example, in, in seeing the obedience of His Son, gave Jesus Christ the name which is above all names. He is Lord. He is Lord of Lords. He is Lord, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And God gave that to Him out of, out of gratitude, and, and God gave that to Him for His glory. The way of Christ leads to the exaltation, to the glory of God the Father. So church, just as we are working out our salvation, just as we are dying to ourselves, just as we are pouring out our lives in a humble service and ministry to others, God is calling us. And I believe just like the sun, God will exalt and lift us up at a point in time in future. Certainly not to the name and the place of the Son, for that would be blasphemous and idolatrous. But still the scripture is straightforward when it says that the last shall be first and the servant shall be the greatest of all. You see, the work of God in us to empty and to pour ourselves out on behalf of others 
is so that God can fill us and exalt us for His glory and in His timing. Church, this is the way of Christ. Oh, that we would commit ourselves today to work out what God is working in us. Let's pray.